0: Great musicians make great albums, but when you add a world-class recording engineer and producer to the mix, you can take your project to another level. For nearly six decades, this is exactly what Al Schmidt has done for the world of music. I'm Al Schmidt has engineered and produced thousands of album projects for some of the most well-known artists in the world, such as Henry Mancini, Sam Cooke, Jefferson Airplane, George Benson, Steely Dan, Toto, Michael Franks, Pablo Cruz, Natalie Cole, Ray Charles, Al Jarreau, Larry Carlton, Joe Sample, Tower of Power, and so many more. Al's approach to recording and producing music is as much about simplicity as it is about technicality. His ears and his instincts are the heart of his craft, as well as his ability to be the musician's best friend in the studio. At 85 years young, Al Schmidt continues to be a first-call engineer, and his plate is full for the coming year. Inside MusicCast is pleased to welcome Grammy award-winning engineer and producer, Al Schmidt. Hey Al,
1: it's a pleasure to have you on the show today.
2: Oh, happy to do it.
1: Welcome, welcome, Al. You know, you've been on our radar for so long now, and we're, we're so happy to have you on the, on the show with us today. Um, obviously, our audience, uh, very much knows your work as a, as a pioneering engineer and, in, in your production work also. So we know that this is going to be a really interesting conversation. So we want to start off, first of all, by saying congratulations, uh, on you, um, becoming one of the newest stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Congratulations. <laughs>
2: Yeah, that was pretty impressive. I was uh, <laughs> wow. That was really it, it blew me away when they told me. Wow, yeah, it's it's amazing.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. You're you're a star. Yeah, it
2: was a fun day too. God, everybody was there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there were some great speeches. Uh, mm-hmm. It was great.
1: Yeah, well, you know, as as your star was unveiled, I even saw the video that was uh, of the ceremony. It was really cool. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, you had some fun. great people there that were, you know, congratulating you. Don was Joe Walsh that said some words. Uh, and yeah. Dave Cazzo, Oriante, Brent you know, Brenda Russell, what is yeah, even Richard there?
2: Yeah, Tambura, one of my dear friends, yeah. was there. Uh, that was, it was cool. Yeah, and your really whole cool.
1: family. I bet you they just... Yeah, uh, people
2: flew in from all over. Tommy LaPuma flew in from New York. Really? You know, he's one of my dearest, dearest friends, <laughs> and, and we've worked together for about 40 years um, on and off. So, yeah. yeah, it was great. It was really great.
3: Yeah.
0: Well, you know, Al, it's it's obvious that we can't cover you know your amazing career as a producer and engineer in the in the course of the time that we have today. But we'll we'll let nice. you talk about some of those uh, most memorable moments in a couple of minutes. Uh, you know, sure. apart from recording, I, I'm sure our audience would love to know a little bit about you and how you first connected to music. And uh, you know, you you were raised in New York City as a child, and and it is it true that you used to take the subway on the weekends to visit your uncle's recording studio? And it, when when was that?
2: Yeah, yeah, my uncle. Uh his name was Harry Smith. He changed uh, Schmidt to Smith because, back in, at that time, because of Germany and the war, there was a lot of German sentiment. So he changed his name uh-huh. and uh, changed it to Harry Smith. And he had a studio, Harry Smith Recording. Okay. He was a pretty famous engineer um, with uh, Brunswick
3: hmm.
2: uh, and then left and started. It was, I believe, the first independent recording studio in New York City. So as a kid, when I was like seven, eight years old, I would get on the subway, walk from my home. I lived in Brooklyn, get on the subway, go to Manhattan and go to his studio, and I would spend a weekend with him. Okay. He, we were very poor, and, and he was, uh, he didn't have any children. He was my father's brother, and he was, besides being my uncle, he was also my godfather. Hmm. So he had a beautiful apartment on on um, Riverside Drive with a view of the of um, the uh, East River and uh, you know the bridges and he had a great car um and he took me uh, to all the fights uh, and hockey matches and things so I was really impressed with him and um and I'd go to the studio to watch him record and yeah. and I got to meet so many people. Uh, there, Bing Crosby, the Andrews Sisters, uh, some of the great ba- bands at that time, Claude Thornhill, and, uh, and you know, it was just a, an amazing thing for a little kid. And I was always my eyes were always wide open, and uh, um, it was a, an amazing thing. And I learned so much just in that time. I, I did that from the time I was eight until I was about thirteen. Uh-huh. And um, and then I started getting interested in playing baseball and stuff with my friends on the weekends. So sure. I stopped going, but it was a great experience.
0: Oh, I bet, and an, obviously an experience that catapulted you into what you, of course, you know, wound up as your career. And um, and yeah. you know, I was just curious. I mean, can you can you remember back? I mean, were you taking notes and like you know, sort of capturing what you know your uncle had in the studio in terms of equipment and mics? And do, do you remember any of that?
2: Yeah, yeah, I used to, well, back in those days, you had to clean the patch cords, so I always yeah. had this cleaning uh, paste and yep. and uh, the big patch <laughs> cords, and I would clean the patch cords. I would also uh, get rid of the chip from, from the lathes, you know, and, and do that, yeah. mm-hmm. and he he taught me to treat... The gear, everything he said you must treat this like it's a delicate Swiss watch.
0: Absolutely. And yeah. if you
2: do that it will always take care of you and and it's something I never forgot.
0: Well, very cool. I, I'm an engineer also, and, and uh, I don't engineer music. I'm a post-engineer, and I've been doing right. it for 23, 24 years, so I've I've seen a lot of changes, too, but um, I can't imagine what you've seen over the course of your yeah, career. Yeah, too. yeah,
2: I would watch him, you know, when he was recording big bands. Uh-huh. Um, you know, he would make them take their shoes off, <laughs> so you wouldn't hear the tapping Um, yeah. um and I mean, to remember as a kid, I'd be looking out at the guys and, and you know, guy would have big toes sticking through a hole in his sock. And, <laughs> and those are things that always stuck with me to see that, you know, as a little kid, I thought that was so funny. Yeah. Um, and then he would move guys around, you know, he'd go out there and reposition people and come back in. Yeah, it was an amazing process.
0: Well, because that was, moving guys around was, was essentially part of your mixing process because you didn't yep. have, you didn't have all the multi-channel, you know, tracking that you do now. So you, that was important, the position in the studio.
2: Yeah, Exactly.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, we we all know that you know becoming a great engineer and producer requires a great ear. And as you were learning at your uncle's studio, tell us how you learned to hear. Uh, you know what he was hearing, and and you know how, how did you? Uh, I mean, I'm I'm sure you were actually fine tuning your instrument, your ear. You know, as you were working in there, because obviously, it didn't yeah, I probably
2: didn't even know I was doing it. Right. But I'm sure I was uh, through, you know, osmosis uh, yeah. coming up with a lot of things. Uh, but he would. Uh, Tell me things you know, to make sure that the vocal was the most important part at that time when they were doing vocal and band, and to keep the vocal you'd have to make sure the vocal was the the most important thing in in the in the process, things like that that were just things I'd never forget yeah. you know how to get the bass I know he would he he'd they put the upright bass up on a riser, and then he'd be. It, it was on like they, they, he could move it. It was movable, and he would move that. You know, sometimes just two feet or so. Uh, it was an, an amazing process.
3: Yeah,
1: that, that's interesting. You know, as as you were hanging around in the studio, um, you know, you you heard people singing and also the the players playing their instruments. Were you ever attracted? I mean, even young, were you an instrumentalist yourself or were you ever a singer or did you not, uh, not... I was a
2: bad drummer. I knew that I would never make a living uh as a as a drummer, so uh but, yeah,
1: that was my instrument, Trump. Right, well, I got you. Okay, well, cool. Well, tell us about your first real job, because as, as, you, uh, as you grew a little older and, you know, you, uh, you, you had this uh, great opportunity at Apex Studio in, in New York City. Can you uh, tell us about the kind of projects you were working on back then when you entered uh, Apex? Well,
2: yeah, that's an interesting story. When I, I got out of the Navy, I, I had about uh, three—I was home about a couple of weeks, and I was getting ready to go back to school. And I was 19, and my uh, my uncle called me and said a friend of his had a recording studio, Apex Recording Studios, and they were looking for someone to break in, and would I be interested? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And uh, so I went over and interviewed for the job. And I knew no matter what I was going to get the job because the guy that owned the studio was my uncle's best friend. and So I think that was all set up. But um, So I did that, and they said, okay, 9 o'clock Monday morning, and 9 o'clock Monday morning, I'm there bright and early, all dressed nice and everything. And and my boss takes me in and introduces me to the guy that's going to be my mentor there who's going to kind of show me Around and how to do things, and that was Tommy Dowd. Oh wow! One of the wow. great, great, great engineers yeah. of all time. Absolutely. Who's been you know is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and you know has made some of the greatest records uh, of anyone. Yeah. I don't know anyone that can really compare to him. Mm-hmm. So he and I hit it off great. I I was like his kid brother, and he bought me a notebook, and uh, and he said to me just. Draw diagrams of how I set up and what microphones I use on each thing, and and I just, I, you know, we were together for almost eight years, Tommy and I, and, yeah. and he was such a big influence in my life in so many ways. So, um, yeah, he's he's responsible, pretty much, he and my uncle for my career.
0: I I know this story about uh, about the time I guess Duke Ellington and his band. Duke
2: Ellington band. Yeah. Walked into you the want studio. me to tell that? Yeah, please tell oh, that cuz yeah. that's a great story. Okay. So I was there for about 3 months at the studio and I I had learned enough that on on Saturday I could come in by myself there was no one there and uh and I would do these little demos and by demo they were someone would come in and play the piano and sing happy birthday to their child, right. you know, or something, yeah. and, and I'd give them the disc and they'd give me $15. And, uh, and then a canter came in and he did cantor on the record and, and I gave him a disc, he gave me $15. Yeah. And it was that kind of thing, you know, somebody had wrote a, written a song and they'd come in and play guitar and sing the song and they'd have a reference for it. And so it was really simple stuff and sure. and nothing real difficult. So um, on the the schedule that day, uh, at 2 o'clock, it said Mercer, and uh, that's all. So I was waiting for Mr. Mercer to show up, (laughs) and the elevator doors opened up, and all these musicians start coming out. Oh, my gosh. And they wanted to know where the studio was. And I said, well, the studio's right there, but what's this all about? Oh, this is Mercer Records. We're here for the recording session. Oh, I said, oh no, there must be a mistake. No, no, this is it, <laughs> 2 o'clock. <laughs> I said, oh boy. So I tried to call Tommy and I couldn't reach him, Tommy uh-huh. down. Right. I tried to call my boss and I couldn't reach him. Uh-huh. So God bless Tommy. I had that notebook and I went through, sort of set up a big band set up, ran in the studio and, and the guys were all standing around. I was setting up. And you know, in those days, we only had eight inputs so i could only put up eight microphones oh, right, right. so you know it didn't take that long to set the whole band up sure. so i got it set up and uh but i kept apologizing to the musicians even and they looked at me like oh yeah sure they didn't give a shit <laughs> so uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh you know i get inside and and it's for Mercer Ellington Duke Ellington's son and Duke was there and Duke sat right next to me and and I kept saying to him, Mister Ellington, there's been a major mistake here. I'm just not qualified to do this. I said, No, no one thought this was going to be. And he just patted me on the knee, and he kept saying to me, "Don't no worry, son. We're going to get through this." <laughs> <laughs> and he, it was, thank God for. It. I guess he saw a look in my eyes, and figured if he didn't calm me down, nothing was going to happen.
3: Oh my gosh! So, yeah, yeah. Um,
2: so he did, and we got through it. We did four songs in three hours. And uh, when it was done, I, I, I can't tell you the elation. I felt that I did it. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, it was like I wanted to open a window and scream in New York <laughs> City and say, hey, I just did a big band recording. <laughs> That's right. You know, I was so so proud of myself that I was able to do it and get through it, and, and it was okay. You know, it wasn't the best record I ever made, but I don't think it was the worst either, you know. Wow. So it was great. That was the start. And because of that, then I started... My boss and, and Tommy started putting me on other things. Like when Tommy couldn't, do, he was doing all the Atlantic stuff. When he couldn't do stuff, I would do it. And I did a record with the uh, with the uh, uh, Clovers, Don't You Know I Love You So, which is yeah. a big R&B hit. Uh, I did that on a Saturday afternoon wow. with uh, 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 Abramson. Uh-huh. He was uh, one of the owners of Atlantic, Herb Abramson. uh uh-huh. And uh and then I got to do Clyde McFadder and I got to do um uh the modern jazz quartet. Uh and you know, of course I was a beebopper when I was a kid and, and loved, you know, all the great jazz guys and, and all of a sudden I'm I'm working with uh, yeah. you know, Dizzy Gillespie and uh right. uh Charlie Parker and <laughs> uh Jerry Mulligan and Chet wow. Baker. I mean you name it. I mean I was like you know, I mean, I couldn't believe it. I, I just thought, you know, I'm doing this and I'm, I'm getting paid too. You know, I wasn't getting paid much, but it was nice.
1: Hey Al, we're, we're, did you have, you know, as you were working with these guys, you know, Dizzy and and right. uh, these names, uh, these these amazing talents. Did you have any concept as to how big of artists they really were at that time?
2: Oh yeah, yeah, because they they were all my idols. Yeah. You know, I mean, I used to when I was 16. We used to go, there were a couple clubs in New York, there was the Royal Roost, there was Pop City, yep. uh, and it was Birdland, and, and you know, f- when you were under it, you had to be 18 to drink, so when, at 16, you could pay a dollar, and they had a rope door section where you could stand and watch all the, you know, and I saw all the major, uh, uh, you know, jazz artists, bebop artists, and all, you know... Um, it was George Shearing, and when Marjorie Himes was the vibe player in the band, and uh, Illinois Jackett, and you know, just these were people I, I you know, I looked up to. You know, it, I was a big baseball fan, so these were like the major league players that I looked up to, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it was great, and to be able to talk to them and and uh, and and realize that they they weren't gods. They were just most of them nice people who were interested in if I had something to say, and it was it was great, great yeah. experience.
1: Your stint at uh, Atlantic Records and also Prestige Records in New York City. Talk to us just a little bit about the, that time.
2: Yeah, I never worked for Atlantic. I, you know, I worked for um, Apex, mm-hmm. and then I went to work um, when Apex closed. I went to work for Fulton Recording,
3: mm-hmm. and
2: and that's when we were doing all the jazz. Records, I got you. Uh,
3: okay,
2: and you know World Pacific Jazz. I did uh, Jerry Mulligan, the Jerry Mulligan songbook, and Chet Baker and Jerry Mulligan, and uh, uh, Bobby Brookmeyer and Jim Hall, the street swingers, and and all the big Latin big bands. Yeah, Cheeto. I was doing Tito Rodriguez. Uh, you know, it was just an amazing experience.
3: Yeah.
2: and and I just got thrown in, you know, and and Tommy. <laughs> was my biggest supporter you know yeah, yeah. and um and he was the one that got me when apex closed he had gone to another studio and i went to a little demo studio called nola okay. uh recording in new york and it was basically a rehearsal studio but they had a little recording room and i you know i I got a job there and was doing that. And then about a year later, Tommy called me and said, Hey, they're looking for somebody at this place where I am now. And, uh, you know, they uh, they know you at work. And I, you know, told them about you. And they'd like to hire you. So I went making, like I was making at that point, point I think I was making like $75 a week. And I went over there, and I was making $145 a week, ah. and boy, that was a hell of a jump. <laughs> yeah. And at that time, I was already married, and I have children on the way. You know, I had three kids by the time I was 25. Yeah. So, so yeah, and so it was great. And we were working with all of the Camp Calloway, and wow. you, know, you know, you name it, so all of <laughs> wow. the great. And we were doing... All the great commercials, uh, the the Gillette commercials Uh that uh, you know for the Friday night fights. Uh So I got to do all kinds of music. That's cool. From string quartets to to um, orchestra dates to uh, small jazz quartets to big bands, and you know it was just an amazing. It
0: was an amazing school. Wow. Yeah, I was gonna say you just you just dove right in and you were cutting your chops with some of these amazing I, I just yeah, I'm trying to absolutely. imagine, you know, you you're cutting your chops and honing your skills with you know all these just incredible uh, musicians. Wow, that's it, very cool. Well, yeah. you you moved from uh, New York to L.A. I think it was like in '58. But I'm, it, but you know, uh, I think when you went out there, uh, did you, did you go out there to work at RCA or did you find your job at RCA after you had moved to? Uh, no,
2: that was after. What happened okay. was <clears throat> I was working with Dick Bach. He was the owner of World Pacific Jazz in New York, and, and one day, we were doing, uh, I think it was Chet Baker, and Jerry Mulligan, and, and he, um, he said, ah, why don't you move to California, and I don't have to come to New York, to work with you, you know, to come all the way out here, I said, jokingly, we were, you know, I said, well, give me a job back there, and I'll come, so about three weeks later, he called me on the phone, and he said, I got you a job out here, at Radio Recorders, it's the number one studio, in California, this was before Capitol, and RCA, and, um, he said, uh, they know you work, they're anxious to have you and the job is yours if you want it. So well. <laughs> I said okay and I moved my family out. Wow. And um uh, and and started there and uh that was it. My my big break there and, and was um Bones Howe was an engineer and a good, really good friend of mine. A great engineer, he did yeah. all the association and all that stuff. He was doing um, a, a new artist, um, Hank Mancini, Henry Mancini. Oh yeah. And he he they were doing Peter Gunn, and he he and the producer gotten some sort of a, a beef, and uh, and he was off the project. And the the producer then said, "Well, I want Al," and so. I got on that project, and that was the Peter Gunn album, which, you know, broke Henry Mancini. Oh, yeah. And then I started, because of that, I started doing all the RCA work and all the Mancini work, and, and, you know. So I was, it was great. When RCA then opened their studios in 59, Mm -hmm. um, I was the first guy they hired. Yeah, that's right. So I went from, from radio recorders to RCA, in 59.
0: Yeah. And they, they built that studio inside an old NBC building. Is that right?
2: It was the old NBC building on, uh, on sunset and vine. Yeah. And, uh, and the great, they did the nightly news and, uh, and the Groucho Mark show, you bet your life. And we had two studios there. All the rest of the stuff was at the new complex that NBC built in Burbank. Uh-huh. So we were the only ones there and I would get to see Groucho, uh, two, <laughs> three times a week and every time we'd pass an all he'd have some remark about something I was wearing or something. Wow. <laughs> he was really a funny guy. So yeah, so that was it. And and then there, um God, we got so busy there and I was working six days a week and I would start it uh I'd do a session maybe from ten to one and then another one from 2 to 5, and another one from 8 to 11. And they were all different. You know, I would do maybe Henry Mancini at at night, 8 to 11, or Billy May and Billy Eckstein. And then in the afternoon from 2 to 5, I'd be doing maybe a score for a film or a TV show. Uh, and then in the morning, a couple of mornings, I was doing uh, the Ike You know, Ike and, <laughs> and the Ike Etz. Yeah. So... Uh, you know, it was great. I learned to do, you know, classical music. Uh, I learned to do, uh, you know, I was doing country music with Bobby Bear. It was a great experience. I poker music. We did everything. So, you know, it was a great experience for me. And even though, you know, I'm not a big poker music fan, uh, it was great because I could concentrate on capturing the sound and uh, and you know the instruments and yeah. and and that was it. You know, it was just an amazing experience. Yeah, wow. It caused me a marriage, you know, because, uh, you know, I was never home. Uh, Really? Oh, I I had to pay. I paid my dues that way.
0: Well, you know, I I know you just explained your schedule, and I know that you were, you know, working 16 to 20 hours a day sometimes at the studio, and and eventually you left and became an independent producer and engineer. And I think your first independent client was a client that you were actually working with at RCA, and that was Jefferson Airplane. And this, yep. you know, this was an eye opener from the standpoint that the, I guess in terms of money, it was far better than just being, you know, on a, a staff engineer. And uh
2: oh, yeah, and
0: you've been independent well, since, right?
2: As a staff engineer or a staff producer, and I couldn't engineer. I had to stop engineering because they had strict union rules at, at RCA. Yeah, uh, but I was doing. Uh, I had eleven artists that I had to either find songs for or whatever. I was you know, I had Glenn Yarborough, a group called the women folk, Hugo Montenegro, Eddie Fisher,
3: yeah.
2: uh Jefferson Aeroplane, uh, you know, it was just on and on. Yeah. So, you know, I was killing myself. And at the end I was doing Eddie Fisher in the afternoon from two to five and then the Jefferson Airplane at eight o'clock at night and we'd go to four or five in the morning (laughs) and I would get home you know get a couple nights uh, hours sleep get back I had to do budgets I had to look for material for the artist that didn't write right and then go in and do this again so I called my boss on the phone and I told him uh, I said, look, you got to get somebody to do Eddie Fisher. I said, I can't do this. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm working 16, 18 hours a day uh, in the studio and then trying to find material and stuff. And his line to me was, well, truck drivers do it. And I said to him, "Really? <laughs> well, get yourself a couple of truck drivers because yeah. I quit and I I put in my resignation. and gave him two weeks' notice and uh, I left. Oh my gosh! And I didn't know what I was going to do. Yeah, holy but, you know, I w- I was home. I was home about ten days, and I get a call from the Jefferson Airplane. And they, they told me, the manager, and he said, You know, they wanted to give us some people at RCA, and there was nobody there we wanted to work with, and we enjoyed working with you. And uh, they said, Okay, you hire whoever you want, and they would give you points on the record and, and wow. a certain amount of money uh, in front And uh, to do the record. So I did. And, you know, I did, now I was doing one artist, and that one artist, my first royalty check was double what I made the whole year working with 11 artists at RCA.
3: Wow. Holy cow. <laughs> yeah,
2: it was amazing. So, and then, I, you know, I was I I wound up doing a lot of, uh, I did four Jefferson Airplane albums, and then I did the Hot Tuna record, the uh, acoustic one, um, and then, you know, Jackson Brown was a friend, and, and he wanted me to work with him, and I, I worked with Jackson Brown. Very cool. Uh, yeah, it was it was great. So <laughs> I was doing that and and producing some little groups and 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 uh, you know getting calls and it was fairly busy. Yeah. Um, and one my dearest friend was Tari LaPuma at that time, and he had just become a producer and pretty hot one at uh, at A and M, and then Blue Thumb. They started the Blue Thumb label, and he was there. And he called me and he said, "You know, Al, I'm working with this artist, and Bruce Botnick is the engineer, and he's the same engineer that did all the Doors records. Yeah, a terrific engineer and a great guy. Um, and he um, he had made a commitment to start a Doors record, and they, they weren't finished with the uh, this record, so." Tommy asked me if I would do it. And I said, well, Tommy, you know, I've only been mainly producing. You know, I haven't been doing uh, much engineering. I'm not sure I can do it anymore. And he said, oh, yeah, it's like riding a bike. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so we made a deal that, you know, if I didn't think I was doing a good job, I could back out. And yeah. if he didn't think I was doing a good job, he'd let me know. And, and we'd still be friends. Well, I got in to start mixing this record. And it was... um uh, Dave Mason, record alone together, wow. and I realized how much I loved doing it. This is what I got into business for in the first place: is to be a recording engineer. Yeah, and so it was. It just it just changed my life. And then again, as I say, I then with Jackson Brown, I started engineering and producing. So I was doing a, both for quite a while, and then I kind of. You know, I, I did the first four Al Jarreau albums that I produced, but I started doing more and more engineering and, and getting more calls for engineering, you know, like Earth, Wind & Fire, I did their first two albums. So, um, yeah, it was my first love, and I was happy yeah. to get back to it. I still produce once in a while, but it has to be a special kind of artist and somebody I'm really into. And, you know, otherwise, you know, I'm I'm happy doing... You know, working with all... I've worked with all the best artists in the world. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's great.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Hey, Al, you you mentioned working just with a just such a myriad of, of, of talents like you know Jefferson airplane Dave Mason who who uh, who played an amazing guitar and you've yeah. recorded guys like Toto and even Fa- Frank Sinatra and Sam Cooke. you know tell us about those those nuances I mean these guys are so diverse and they're what they're what they bring to the musical table even instrumentally and vocally it's also different I mean um you know how, how did you begin to approach each one of these artists when they come with you and uh because you you have different setups for for different groups,
2: yeah, they are different approaches and different setups. But I think the experience that I had at RCA with being able to record so many different kinds of music really helped me so much with with those artists. Yeah. And I also one thing I learned, and and somebody told me at one point, and it always stuck with me. And I tell young guys this when I go to teach anywhere: mm-hmm. just remember, the artist name goes on the front. If you're lucky, your name goes on the back. And just remember, that's what it's all about. It's all about yeah. the music and yep. the artist. And and you've got to let your ego get out of the way.
3: Yeah, yeah.
2: So, yeah, it's cool. And, you know, if I was not sure of something, I would ask. You know, I was not ashamed to ask how do you set up for this kind of a group? Yeah. And then they would tell me, well, this is the way we do it normally on stage or whatever. And, yeah. you know, and that seems to work fairly well. And, you know, I would go and do it. And I always tell other engineers, you know, one, they break in, um, the musician in the studio is your best friend. Make make sure you make friends with them. And they'll tell you, you know, hey, you know, I could use a little more hi-hat than the drums, or, you know, I need a little more of this, or, you mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. the bass is a little boomy. Could you, maybe... You know, you work with these guys, and, and uh, you know, it's it's part of a team.
3: Yeah,
2: Your ego can't get in the way. You know, right. you have to... Uh, Make friends and 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 take suggestions.
0: Right, you know, I, I was thinking of this in, almost in in kind of an opposite sort of approach. You know, where you said if you don't know, ask. You know, I know that you mentioned a second ago that you know you didn't grow up really with a musical background. You played drums, and right. uh, but I wondered. You know, do they? Do the artists ever lean on you for musical advice? Has that ever happened, or, or do, what kind of... If, oh, sure. If they, oh,
2: all the time. Yeah, if they do that... It always, always happened, Still, today, even more so yeah. than, than back then. But, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They would ask, you know, what do you think about this, Al, or whatever. They would always ask my advice. Yeah.
0: And, and did you feel comfortable? Well,
2: you know, if artists were going out on the road and, and were going to do something, they'd ask me, what kind of microphone should I use, uh-huh. and you know sure uh, yeah it was it was
0: great well you know thinking back to the first decade or so of being an independent engineer um yeah. how how difficult was it to jump, say, I'm assuming you were jumping from studio to studio sometimes, and and I was curious about in terms of the learning curve and getting to know the room and the console, the patching, and all of that. Was that was that a difficult task, or, or were you pretty natural? At yeah,
2: that? yeah. Well, most of the time, um, you know, you usually have a good assistant or the maintenance crew is down there, and yeah. they'll. They'll show you the patching systems, or if there's something I want to do, I could always call the maintenance guy, and they'd come down and show me where the patches were on that. It was, uh, yeah, learning the different boards, you know, from, uh, there were so many different boards back then, you know, the SSL and the Neves, and and, um, a ton of them. So that was kind of a, Quad 8 was a great great board. Mm-hmm. So learning those and and learning, you know, I learned which boards I liked, yep. you know, and certainly I, was, I became a Neve fan. I loved the sound of the Neve preamps and the Neve mm. boards. When I was being booked, I would always try to make it work at a studio that had a Neve console and, and a good array of microphones and so forth. Then I started collecting. So, uh, you know, now I have about 60 microphones and and a lot of speakers and uh, preamps I have a ton of preamps and compressors. So, so yeah, I, I you know I have four racks of stuff that come in when I when I start. Yeah. So, you know, I have almost all my own stuff. So it's pretty easy. And then in the better studios, you always have a good assistant. And uh, yeah. I'm lucky when I work at Capitol. Yep. you know, I, the guys there are amazing. Have a great great uh, maintenance crew and their, their assistants are the best in the business so, yeah. so
0: it's great. You know I, I before the way you started uh, the interview Al I, I told you that I met you in an AES convention probably 17-18 yeah. you know, yeah. years ago and and I listened to a presentation you gave, and you know I got to briefly chat with you afterwards about you know mics and EQ compression, and and I was amazed, you know, at the time being a young engineer about how simplistic, you know, you know you made the process sound, you know, choosing the right mics, you know, using little EQ and and or you know little or no compression, and and simply using your ears, you know, for for mic placement, and it was, you know, it was a good lesson for me, you know, again being a young engineer, and I'm sure that just simple. Um, sort of uh, approach is is another a great piece of advice for young engineers who feel like they you know they have to abuse you know processing in order to get the sound they want.
2: Well, when when I teach yeah, and I go to uh, you know France or wherever I'm going to go to Russia this uh coming year uh-huh. to teach um well, when I when I teach uh you know guys later on they'll they'll email me or or call me and say, you know, I've been using your techniques and God has made my life so much easier and my records are sounding so much better. So it's great. Fortunately, or maybe unfortunately, when I started, we didn't have any um, EQ on the board. We had one equalizer, a cinema equalizer. Uh-huh. And if you added the anything it equalized everything. Yeah. You couldn't just put it on the bass or the vocal wow. or, or whatever. Right. So we rarely ever used it. <laughs> and we didn't have a compressor. So we 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 learned how to hand compress, you know? Yeah. You learn a song and you ride gain. Wow. You know, uh, with the vocalists. Yeah. When they got loud, you learned how to back it back off it down, a little yeah. bit or bring it up. And then and back then, a lot of singers, most singers, had what we call microphone technique. They leaned in on the low notes, they backed off on the high notes, when there was a P or something, they would just, you know, aim a little over the mic so they didn't pop the the mic. Um, you know, so that that was a big help. Mm -hmm. There were people like Rosemary Clooney Rosie Clooney, God, you could set her level. You know, get a level set on her and forget it. Yeah, <laughs> never had to touch her. You could be busy doing all the other things. She she leaned in, she backed off. I mean, it, she was perfect. Sonata yeah. was another one. That was great.
0: Yeah,
2: green mic technique.
0: Human faders.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, and then with the fact that we learned how to ride gain on things, uh-huh. uh, you know, between them and and you know with them them, my technique, and and us doing some, you know, hand compression, so to speak, it uh, made for good records. hmm hmm
0: well, you know, we've got a lot of engineers and musicians who listen to our show. And just, you know, talking about mics here for a second, um, you can get a little bit technical if you want to. And, and I want to – I'm going to name just – if you don't mind doing this, I'm going to name a few instruments. And I'd love to know, you know, what you would sure. choose as a mic preference as well as maybe just a quick idea of placement and perhaps if you would use any certain processing, you know. Yeah. And, and sure. d- the first one, I think it might be your favorite, the double bass.
2: Oh, that is my favorite instrument. <laughs> and, you know, years ago, um, when we were doing things at um, at RCA, or, or even when I first started, I used a, a ribbon microphone, um, a, a, six, a Western Electric 639.
3: Uh-huh.
2: And it's a great mic that guys use on vocals a lot. Yeah. But I used it on bass, and I would put it about, about 10 inches from the F-hole, uh-huh. And that was it. And uh I got a pretty good bass sound that way. Then when I got to RCA and I was doing all these things with uh with Mancini, uh, we started using a technique where we, we taped a lipstick mic um under the bridge of the upright bass.
3: Sure. Yep. And
2: that seemed to work out fairly well because it helped some of the isolation, mm-hmm. you know, and the separation. Um, and we used that for a long time. Mm-hmm. Then um, I started using um, uh, Neumann U47s, and always one mic. And I used it, you know, again, off the F-hole. Yep. Neumann came out with a mic, uh, the uh, M149. Yep. And I, I. so I started playing with that. And now what I've been doing, and I've been doing this for probably the last 12 years, I have one mic on the F-hole, an M49, about Uh 10 inches back from it. And then I have another M149 up near the fingerboard to get some of the definition off the fingerboard. Mm -hmm. And that's what I use um, all the time. Mm -hmm. And Christian McBride, my favorite bass player in the world, it says I get the ba- greatest bass sound, uh, you know, all the bass players love me because I get a great bass sound. So, um I'm sticking with that one now for a long time.
0: Yeah, the next instrument I'm going to bring up, this is not one that you would use too often obviously in a classical setting and I think I've read somewhere that you mentioned it was it was it was a very difficult instrument to mic and that's a French horn.
2: Yeah, yeah, well, it depends on on um um what the music is and sure. what if it's a french like if it's a jazz thing like uh Marty Page used to have his deck tet yep. there'd be a French horn, I would always put the mic behind the the player because you know the sound blows off uh-huh. back,
3: yeah. and
2: uh I'd put the mic back there and i i I've been using an m forty one forty nine on that um but if it's in an orchestration where you're having, you know, you've got strings and woodwinds and brass and French horns, then I use the mic in front and take, I put a reflective behind them and take the reflected sound. Okay. And pick up the sound that way. So the mic is facing the French horns. Very cool. Yeah, it, it's cool. That was, that, <laughs> I had a. Real fear of French horns when I when I was young, first starting. Yeah. and And uh, one of my mentors, a guy by the name of Bob Doherty, who taught me how to record big orchestras, large orchestras, said, uh, "You know, they don't bite." Showed me how to do it, and and, uh, and then threw me into my first big session, which was about fifty musicians and. And I was trembling. I was just trembling. I was <laughs> afraid to see, I had my hands in my pockets because I was afraid people were going to see my hands shaking. <laughs> so I got up to the board, sat down, and grabbed the faders. We had rotary faders in those yeah, days, yeah. you know. And uh, grabbed the faders and it was on. And, and it worked out really well. And, and he taught me really well. And, uh, and the guy that, uh, um, the producer was very happy. So uh, I said, boy, I like this. And now that's my favorite thing to do. Yeah. The more the more musicians, the better, you know. And I'm I'm getting more and more to doing things. It's it's amazing because I've done a couple of albums just recently. Um, one with Neil Young, where we had a hundred pieces in the uh, studio. We had a sixty-five voice. Uh, I mean, a sixty-five piece orchestra and a thirty-five voice choir. Wow. And and it was all live to two track, just about. And he sang. And he stood right next to the conductor and sang live. Wow.
3: And that was <laughs> we
2: did that at the Sony scoring stage uh-huh. uh which is one of the more beautiful rooms in the world. Yeah. Um and it just came out fantastic. It was just great. Wow. And then I did another one with um a small thing with um Bob Dylan and I went back he did he said he wanted to see very few mics. He didn't want a lot of mics around, you all know, So, so I went back to the the old way we used to record years ago, and I set him up in the middle of the room with uh, a U47 on his vocal, uh-huh. and then about a foot from that, I had an M49 that I had in in, in omnidirectional. Then immediately to his left was the rhythm guitar player, and uh, I had a uh, A 4080, uh, audio technical 4080 ribbon mic on that.
3: Those are nice. And
2: then next to him was the bass player, and I only had, I put up one mic, and I had it down low. And about seven feet from the bass, believe it or not. And then in the middle was the drummer, and I, I, I put up a C24, um, uh, stereo microphone, um, on, on him next to him was the um electric guitar and so I had him the player facing directly at at um Bob and then behind him I had his amp blowing into his his back okay. yeah, a few feet of his back and then I had the mic there so Bob couldn't see the mic. And it's then next to him was the steel player and he was like on Bob's right. Okay. And I had the same thing there. We used no headphones, no EQ, no limiting, and we did a tape. And, it, and almost all of it was direct to tape. And it was <laughs> just amazing. And Bob came in. And it was the first time I'd worked with him. He came in. He said it was the best his voice sounded in forty years.
3: <laughs> <laughs> amazing.
2: Wow. And I, I mean, it was. It just came out great. Uh, it's called. Uh, Shadows in the Dark, I okay. think is the title of the album. It's his last album that came out. It got nominated for a Grammy this year yeah. for uh, mm-hmm. uh, Best uh, Traditional Pop Vocal.
3: Very cool.
2: So I was very proud of that, Mike, yeah, that setting. And guys keep calling me. You want to know, how did you do that, Al? How did you set up like that? So, so it was great. It was, you know, I was able to go back to my uh, my beginnings and, and, uh, yeah. and set up like we used to years ago because... You know, we never had earphones uh, when I started, and everybody, you had to set up everybody close enough to hear one another. As a matter of fact, Bob said, Al, I I can't hear enough of the rhythm guitar, we just moved them closer. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it was great.
1: Neat. Well, I just have one one more quick uh, addition to the to the instrument, um, and that's yeah. the, the the baby grand piano. Now, let let's just just to to sort of narrow down the scope of this thing. Let's just say it's not a classical performance with an orchestra, but maybe a a, a soloist at a piano. And uh, I mean, because that varies so much, you have Steinway, Bosendorfer, C sevens. How do you normally uh, how would you handle a piano? Well,
2: it's different ways. You know, if it's somebody like when I was doing. Um Joe sample mm-hmm. um, for, for instance I'd have two mics in the piano, one over the um the high end of the strings, and then one yeah. down on the low end yeah. of the strings and then uh I had a mic outside the piano and yeah. what I had on those were i used um m one forty nines inside the piano and uh c twenty four a k t uh Serial microphone outside the piano, you know, at the where the piano curves. Sure. And then it's a blend of those. Piano is a difficult instrument to record, yeah, you know, knows. to really get a good sound, and mm-hmm. it's one of the tough ones. Uh, with Diana Krall, you know, she plays and sings, and and uh, you know, so we're trying to keep her vo- vocal out of the piano mics and the piano, you know, out of her vocals, so. Um, we, we came up with a sleeve that fits over the piano and where we can put the microphones in. Wow. And with her, I use M149s on the piano all the time. Wow. And and uh, I keep them about uh, a foot off the hammers. Okay. And one on the low end and one on the high end. And, mm-hmm. and just about a foot off the hammers. And that seems to work really well for me. And when I did... Uh, I did an album, You Must Believe in Spring, with uh, Bob, oh, I can't of his name right now. Anyway, one of the great pianists of all time. Um, He, we had three pianos in the studio. We had a a Bosendorfer, a a Yamaha, and a Steinway. And believe it or not, the Steinway sounded the best in the room, but it was a little uneven in, in spots, so he said, give me an hour and I'll, I'll get this down and I'll learn this. And, uh, and he did. You know, we came in and it, it's a beautiful record.
0: Two of my very favorite albums were recorded by you. And I, I think you were involved in both of them anyway. And one, of course, was Toto 4. Right. Of course, the other one was Asia by Steely Dan. And right. I guess if we start with Toto 4, tell me how you became connected with the band and how you were asked to record this album. I, I believe it was Jeff Porcaro that brought you on, right?
2: Yeah. What was happening, I was working, uh, I was doing a lot of records for Andy Crawford, mm-hmm. Dr. John, uh, you know, and uh, and I did in one, like one period of time, 11 albums, and Jeff was the drummer on every, rec- on every one of those albums. So, you know, we, and we became really close friends. Mm-hmm. So what happened when they were getting ready to do Toto, I was doing something else with Stu Levine, uh, who was a great producer, And um, they were supposed to have, and I won't mention the engineer's name, but they couldn't work out a deal with him or something. He wanted points and whatever, and it it just didn't seem to work. And so Jeff said, hey, man, you know, I've been working with Al, and he gets a great drum sound. Um, Let's bring him in. Well, I knew David Page because his father... Um, I worked with his father a lot, and yeah. I used to see David when he was a little kid, and he <laughs> would come in the studios when his, his dad was working. Oh yeah, yeah. So anyway, we went, we went over to Sunset Sound, and uh, I set up the way I normally set up, and got everything set up, and was getting stuff. And they were running down this tune, and uh, he said, uh, finally, at one point, David said, "Well, when is Al going to get sounds on this?" And I said, "Well, we're ready to go," and you can kind of walk, you know. Anyway, we we did a take. They came in, they listened. They were blown away, man. It just sounded amazing. <laughs> and so they went out and did another take and came in, and that was the take, and that was Rosanna. So it, it right. was just great. Then um, we were doing uh, Africa, yep. and uh, before we got to do it, Jeff went out, and he just played. And, and he played, oh, I don't know, for about two minutes. Yeah. And then he came in and listened, and we took one bar and edited the tape, and then we put it on a loop. You know, we took a mic stand, and you know how that
3: works. Put
2: it on a loop, and that was Africa. That's the whole track of Africa.
3: That's cool.
2: Um, Yeah, it was great. That was um, was a fun time, and I knew all these kids. They were kids to me, Um, and a couple of them uh, went to school with my kids. Oh, yeah? You know, Steve Baccaro and, and my son, my son, Steve, were yeah. best of friends. You know, they were, went to the same school. So it, it was kind of fun. It was great. And um, I had my um, my young son, uh, my ex-wife moved to Nashville, and he was with, came to stay with me during that time. And Jeff Baccaro was so great, because when I was overdubbing guitars with Luke and all that stuff, he took care of my, my son. It took him to the house. Yeah. And they played pinball together and <laughs> showed him how to play drums. And I mean, it was a, it was a racing time. Uh, and, and that was a great record. And I had a friend who said, Gee, Al, you know, um, i have never been to the Grammys. And he said, You know, I'd love to go to the Grammys. I said, The next time I know, I think I got a record that's good enough for the Grammys, I'll let you know. So when we finished the day, the first day of doing uh, Toto, yeah. I called my friend on the phone. I said, yeah, yeah. I think we're going to have a Grammy on this one. <laughs> you know, it's funny how you can tell yeah. those things. And,
0: uh, of course, it didn't. It just was an amazing record. It was. You know, going back to what you said a second ago about how, you know, you got everybody set up, you did a take, and then everybody came in and listened, and they were blown away. You know, Steve Lukather mentioned that he, too, was, you know, he was so struck by your simplistic but effective approach, you know, to miking the band and how he was... You know, he was intrigued by, you know, those minor adjustments you made with mics and achieving, you know, the sounds you were trying to capture. And uh, I think he was ultimately impressed with, you know, how your track sounded when he first heard playback. And uh, and I was just – you know, when preparing to record an album, you know, is – Intricate and as lush and ex- and as expansive as Toto 4 was, how did you, how did you prepare? How did, how did you walk into that session and 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 go? I mean, did you just it was it just your background and your natural instinct about what? Yeah, what yeah,
2: it... it was natural instincts, and and the one thing I knew it was just there were, um, Lenny Castro was playing kungas yeah. on it, and and uh, and Jeff on drums, um, um, David Hungate was on bass, yeah. uh, and uh, and uh Paige was on uh, on piano, so it was like just recording a really good, strong rhythm section and uh And Luke was there and luke uh, you know he actually would uh, we overdubbed most of luke's solos but but you know he played the, he got the groove gone too and uh so it was just like recording five guys I mean it wasn't anything special it was but it was special because the mm-hmm. music was so special. You know, and uh, so it was just a matter of getting the mics in the right places, let, making sure everybody could hear one another. I had the Congress right next to the drums, and it was all in an open room. We didn't have anybody, you know, there was no ISO booth. Yeah. So, you know, it was just what well, was there, and it, yeah. it was just amazing.
0: Yep, absolutely. I was
2: very happy. And Jeff, nobody got a sound like Jeff, and, and I believe. I believe Jeff was the best of of all those drummers ever.
3: Yeah, I agree I with you. I <laughs>
2: don't think there's ever
1: anybody better. I, th- I think you're right. I, I would agree with you on that yeah. one. Hey, Al, um, Rick just mentioned uh, one of our favorite albums. Of course, a lot of our listeners, it, this album is, is, uh, is, is huge for them too. It's called Asia by uh, Steely Dan. Now, there are several engineers that are also credited on this album, such as yourself. Right. But we also have like Bill, Bill Schnee, Elliot Shiner, and Roger Nichols. You right, know.
2: right, exactly. What was your
1: your role with this mix? And tell my us my how... role
2: was. I got a call um, from them, and uh, I was working at uh, Sound Labs, a studio that a very famous engineer Armin Steiner owned. And it was uh, Caddy Corner uh, off uh, near um, Capitol. Yeah. So I got a call from them that they uh, they wanted uh, g- g- Gary Katz, their producer. Yeah. said, hey, Al, you know, we want you to mix a tune. And, and, you know, I knew Elliot and what he was doing and how great all the stuff was. So mm-hmm. they came in and they brought Peg. And uh, they left me with the tapes and they split. So I messed around and got uh, got the sounds the way I thought everything should sound and got everything down. it was before automation. Yeah. So um, they came back and they heard what I was doing, they loved it and all, but now we had it, so there were like five of us on the board. You know, one guy was <laughs> adding echo in one spot, uh, you know, they had a little echo, another guy was doing something else. Wow. Uh, so yeah, so each each time we ran it down, it was like a performance. Wow. You yeah, know, absolutely. So, and, yep. and then when I would say, oh, I say, "Oh man, that was great!" I, I, that's it, boy. That sounds great. Somebody would say, uh, "Well, I missed. It. I didn't get the right <laughs> echo, in the right thing. We'd have <laughs> to do it again." So it took us about twelve hours oh. to mix Peg. <laughs> but cow. when we yeah. got it done, it was fabulous. And oh, then yeah. I did Deacon Blues um, on the album, and that was it. That was all I did on that record. I mixed those two songs. Um, Elliot China, I think, did the majority of the work. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you, you, it doesn't get any better than Bill Schnee and Elliot China. Yeah. You know, and those are some of the great engineers in the world. And they're both still really good friends of mine and both still working.
3: Yeah, yep, absolutely. sure are. Are.
1: Yep. Hey, listen, working with Fagan and Becker on, on this album, you know, was, you know, as musically complex as it is, you know, we've heard many stories of the musicians' standpoint. But from your perspective, you know, was this an extremely challenging gig? I mean, tell us about working with Donald yeah. Walter.
2: Yeah, it was very challenging because everything. I mean, they wanted everything perfect. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that was the challenging part: is yeah. to 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 be able to do something and continue to do it exactly the same. Um, when you had that down, you had that down, that was perfect. Now they were adding other things, and you had to get those perfect also. So, yeah, it was really challenging. Mm -hmm. Now, I'll tell you another thing. When we did FM, no static, and uh, we did that at Capitol, uh, the the Johnny Mandel came in and did the the strings on that. And uh, Mandel said to me, Hey, Al, who are these guys, you know? <laughs> he, he wasn't sure anymore. He said, you know what they're doing? I said, oh, yeah. And uh, so they were out there, and uh, at one point, Donald Fagan hits the talk back and, and said, says to Mendel, um, John, uh, you know, I think in the viola section, there's you know, you check that out. There's something not right in there. And sure enough, there was a bad note. And uh and and uh, you know, Johnny found it. But he kinda looked at me and shook his head because not many people would have heard that. I didn't hear it. And and he did, you know. Wow. So so yeah, they know what they're doing. Those guys are great and and you know, it's always fun with them because uh Donald Fagan has got one of the great sense of humor. and but you gotta pay attention.
0: Yeah, I would imagine.
2: And yeah. and it's unbelievable. It's it's great. So yeah, they those guys were amazing. That was great. Another great experience that I had, and maybe we can talk about this now or a little later, was sure, what ahead. we did Unforgettable.
0: Let's go ahead and talk about that, because sure. I did want to chat about it.
2: Yeah. What had happened was when, when uh, you know, there were a bunch of producers on it. Andre Fisher, David Foster, Tommy LaPuma was yeah. the executive producer. So when we were told David Foster was doing Unforgettable, uh-huh. So what we did, we we got the three track tape of Nat's version, okay, from Capitol, right. And what we did was because there was so much leakage mm. in his vocal, yeah. And even though it was on the center track by itself, right, there was so much leakage. We had to filter out all the leakage between things and all. And there were a couple spots where where there was some high flute things, and we couldn't get them out.
3: Yeah. Wow.
2: So they were there, and today you'd be able to do that. You know, we have the equipment today to be able to eliminate all that, but we we couldn't back then. And so when Johnny Mandel did the chart, we made him aware of those spots, and what he did was covered those spots up with the same thing that was going on at that time. Mm -hmm. So, um, And then I think the most difficult part of that record... Was uh, course, Natalie was incredible on it, and and uh, the arrangement was great. You know, Johnny Mandel doesn't get any better than him, and uh, you know David Foster is a great producer. So, the I think the toughest part was matching natalie right. to her dad
0: did you find the same mic
2: yeah we we found the same mic we tried to get that tried to you know it was different room because yeah. we were working now i think on her vocal we were over at Schnees and Nat's vocal was done in studio b at the capitol okay so that was a difficult thing getting that to match up once we got that um and that was hard because we worked almost Oh, well, like till two in the morning and then everybody went home. And then I came back around ten and uh and finally was able to get it exactly the way it was should be. And everybody came in and listened and, and that was it. And then I was doing George Benson and I was going over to Hawaii. Right after we finished it, I was going to Hawaii, and I brought a, I had a cassette of it, uh-huh. and I played it for George Benson. When he heard it, he, he, Nat Cole was his biggest, uh, you know, he loved Nat Cole. Okay. And when he heard it, he couldn't believe it. He said, oh, my God, that, that that's going to be such a smash. Yeah. And, of course, you know, it just when it came out, it just took off, and, sure. and there were a lot of Grammys fans.
0: It, you mentioned that when you pulled uh, the three track of, of Nat King Cole's uh, version, and you yeah. said the it was was the leakage due to just improper storage. The story was it? Storage? No, no,
2: no, no. It was all done live. Part oh, of okay. It was,
0: oh, it was done live. Okay.
2: I thought maybe. Yeah, you had... all done live. Back then, it was everything was done live. Okay. And uh, there was he didn't do any overdubbing. Oh, I, okay. And so so he was at that piano. He had that small uh-huh. Steinway, uh, seven foot Steinway that he loved. Um, and then the, the orchestra's there, so there was obviously you couldn't separate it that much. So there was some some flute leakage, mainly the high stuff.
0: You mentioned that you, uh, you know you had to record Natalie at Bill Schnee's, and and, and that was recorded at uh, in Capitol Studio B. Right. Were, were you not able to get that room, or
3: what, uh, yeah, it...
2: I think there was something going on that we couldn't get it. They uh, was okay. booked or something, and okay. yeah, we couldn't get in there. So, yeah, we made it work, though, and obviously, you know, you know, it came out great.
0: Yeah. That was a beautiful album. I, actually, I saw, I got to see Natalie Cole on that tour, um, and yeah. she sang that song, and it was in sync with video that they played above her, mm-hmm. with her, you know, a video of with her father her dad, singing. Yeah. Yeah, it was... It a was, video, <laughs> it
2: was
0: yeah. Really amazing. That was beautiful. She
2: can sing, boy, I'll tell you. <laughs> she she blew me away, and, you know, I've recorded her a lot. I did, a, I don't know, maybe four or five albums with her, yeah. but... Um, she would go out and stand right in the middle of the orchestra and sing. You know, she, yeah. there was no tuning or no any of that going on. Uh, she mm-hmm. just belted out, sang, and she had no fear. Mm-hmm. Um, it was great. It's great to watch her.
0: Well, you know, you spent your formative years recording, obviously, in the analog realm, but, you know, how early did you adopt digital recording? And do you recall the first digital platform that you recorded with?
2: Yeah, the first was a digital tape machine. Okay. Um, And, and we... Was it a dash it recorder? It was the Warner Brothers, and it was uh, Yellow Jackets. Okay. Uh, the band.
3: Okay, yeah. And that
2: was the first digital thing I ever did. And I, to be honest with you, I was not very happy with the digital sound. I, I yeah. didn't like it at all. And so I stayed away from it uh, for quite a while. Uh-huh. When it got to 96... Uh, you know, when we were doing 96. Now I do like 182, but when we were doing 96, it got better, and and we were able to make it really sound good, and mm-hmm. and uh, so we'd get artists in that wanted to keep doing tape, you know, and we record on tape, and we'd record on on uh, in Pro Tools mm-hmm. at, one, at uh, 96. and um, we'd. Um, We'd A, B, back and forth where they wouldn't know when we were hitting the button and changing. 90% of the time, they couldn't tell the difference, which was tape and which was the uh, digital. So when that happened, then and we did a thing with Diana Carl where we did uh, three takes, and the third take was it. It was great, but she loved the piano solo on uh, on the second take. And in Pro Tools, we just book lifted it off, put it in, in, and take three, and we did it in five minutes. If we were on analog tape, it would have taken a half hour out of the session (laughs) because we would have had to stop, make the cuts, take the tape off, put the, you know, and and do all that, and it would have taken at least a half an hour Mm -hmm. to make sure it worked. And then you take that time out of the session, and and when everybody's got a groove going, you don't want to be wasting that time.
0: Yeah, you don't want to bust up the momentum. That's true. Right. And and I know from just based on that comment alone, I know that you prefer recording digitally over analog. And I I think you've mentioned that Pro Tools is your uh, workstation of choice. But I'm just curious to know, just from a technical side, if you if you use Avid's uh, DA converters or if you use another another DA such as the
2: Apogee. Yeah, you, we use uh, d- different ones. Yeah, the yeah. Apogee. We use uh, you know a really good clock. Uh, yeah, so you know, it's I work over at Capital most of the time now, and they they have my whole setup over there, and they know exactly what I want. Uh, yeah, it's all set up ready to go before I even get in.
0: Yeah, oh, that's well, that's nice. Nobody does that for me at my studio.
2: I know, I know, I'm blessed, uh, you know I have, uh, well, you know I was always told to be prepared from when I first started so to get there early, be prepared so I still, if I have a downbeat at 10 o'clock I'm at the studio at 7 Okay. and we check out all the mics we don't just scratch them, we talk in them you know, to make sure everything is good we check all the phasing
3: Uh,
2: I check all my preamps because I have a bunch of preamps that I use Mm -hmm. um And uh, so we check everything. And then by, you know, 9 o'clock, 9.15, we're able to have a cup of coffee and relax and and greet all the musicians as they start coming in. Yeah,
1: sure. Hey Al, there's another project that uh, me and Rick enjoy listening to. It's called uh, Genius Loves Company, and that's a project with uh, Ray Charles, and it yeah. uh, it features a lot of amazing artists: Nora Jones, Natalie Cole, BB King, right. James Taylor, and so on. Even Elton John, I believe. Um, but Rick and I were talking, and we remember uh, listening to this project for the first time, and it, and it just uh, seems so open. We sort of knew it was you because it was wide open. There was so much room to breathe and to listen yeah. to. So our guess is that uh, this had to be one of you. Your favorite projects? Tell us about this uh, wonderful project.
2: It was one of my favorite projects. You know, I worked with Ray back in like 1961. I did a, a, an album with Ray called um, uh, Ray Charles and Betty Carter. Mm-hmm. And if you've never heard that record, ferret it out because it's a it's a beauty. It's duets with Barry, uh, Betty Carter. And it's a great record. So so I was friends with Dre. I did uh the Country and Western uh album volume two. Um so you know, I we had been worked together on three or four projects before. The sad part he was so sick mm-hmm. when we yeah. were doing this and, yeah. and he could only work for like a couple hours and then he'd have mm. to go lay down mm. uh take it easy and I think that was probably the most difficult part of making this record was to see Ray on his you know, you knew that it wasn't he wasn't gonna be around much longer. Right. Yeah. Uh and I think that was the most difficult thing. And everybody felt the same way and so everybody just went out of their way to do their best and to do it as quickly as possible. Yeah. So we weren't straining him. Phil Ramone, who's one of my dearest friends, uh, was the producer and uh you know, we worked together on so many projects and, and, uh, and he was so kind, uh, to Ray and, and how, how we did things and, mm-hmm. and, you know, it was great. And at one point they wanted us to, uh, to mix over at Ray's studio. And so we went over there to mix and the board was a mess, a oh. total mess. <laughs> oh, no. And I said to, uh, to Dave and, uh, to, uh, To Phil Ramone um, and John Burke, who was the other producer, we're never going to get anything here. This is going to take forever and it's not going to sound that great. So we talked to Ray because Ray wanted to do it at his studio. We talked to him and he said, oh, I think he said, well, if Al said he'd rather do it at Capitol, okay. <laughs> so we did. We went to Capitol wow. and did it there. And thank God, because I was able to use the live chambers oh, yeah. that they have at Capitol and uh, and a great board and everything works great. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was great. And we all knew that we had something special that night. I won five Grammys that night. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it was an amazing night. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it was great. I went, you know, I went for Best Engineering. I went for Best Surround Sound and then, uh, you know, Album of the Year. And, wow. wow. Yeah, well, and it, it was great. It
0: was much deserved because it was a beautiful project.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah it was great. It was so much fun. I, 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 I love working on that. And I love the fact that, you know, I was the last guy to work with Ray, um, yeah. and, uh, you know, I I admired him so much. And, yeah. you know, I, I'd go back with him in the Atlantic days, you know, back in the 50s. Yeah. So, yeah, he was, you know, I didn't work with him back then, but I, Tommy Dow did, and I got to meet him a few yeah. times
0: when it comes to mastering you know your go to mastering engineer is is Doug Sachs and uh right. i know you guys have done so many projects together and i but i've always wondered if if you ever tried your hand at mastering
2: well years ago when we <laughs> engineers did their own mastering right, right so you know i i i did a project from start to finish you know i'd record it and then i would do the whatever and master it Uh, and at RCA, when it was at RCA, we sent back our mixes and they mastered back there without any EQ. So we had to get our mixes exactly the way we wanted them to to sound and all. And then they evidently, they mastered exactly the way we sent it to them. So, uh... Yeah, I never, you know, I never wanted to do that there was, uh, for a living, that's for sure. And there are so many good ones, you know, Bernie uh, Grunman is a, a great one and been around forever. And, and Doug Sachs is my all-time favorite, and God, I still miss him. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, now I'm scuffling around, you know, I'm trying different <laughs> guys to find somebody yeah, that, uh, right. that can give me what uh, Doug gave me.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, considering all of the amazing recording technology you know we have at our disposal today, you know, so many albums, major releases are just you know they're difficult to listen to because they're either recorded or mastered so poorly, and you know, it, yeah,
2: oh, that's true, you know, and so loudly they're putting yeah. so much volume on um, uh, on the, the CDs that you know it's it's almost like this compression happens because yeah. they you know they're right up to the top. The records don't seem to breathe. Right. So, and and you never get that from the real good old time mastering guys yeah, like right. Doug and Bernie.
0: Well, you answered my question because I was going to say just that. You know, it's like a loudness war. Everybody wants to be loud, and nobody really cares so much
2: about it. Yeah, actually. Yeah, and I brought, belong to a little group called Turn It Up. And uh, we have all over the country, but, you know, if it's not loud enough, just turn it up when you're playing it. You know, you want it louder? <laughs> turn it up. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so so we don't try to, uh, you know, kill the record, kill the CD, and put too much on it.
0: Mm-hmm. And, you know, the other sad part of it, too, is that, like I said, we have, you know, you record at 192, and I'm sure you probably record at 24 or 32-bit when you do. And then, you know, the sad part is is that, the majority of people listening to it are, are listening to a compressed, you know, MP3 at 128 kilobits or something like that, you know, and right, you never right. really experience, you know, what you've experienced in the studio or what it should actually sound like. And, but, you know, I did read right. something interesting today. You know, um, Eddie and I were talking about this just before, and I just saw this news story come out today, but Apple uh, is supposed to unveil a high-resolution audio streaming service next year. And, I hope so. And, it's, and the spec I saw was 96 kilohertz 24-bit. And right. I thought, wow, that's that's that would be impressive. Yeah, and
2: not only that, but you know, we've been working on that. Capital has been working on that for a long time, mm-hmm. and uh, and they have they have all kinds of symposiums and everything at Capital where people play things and talk about high res and uh-huh. where you know the Grammys are trying to get into it and yeah. and, and make sure things are you know high res and and uh, so hopefully we can we can get people to um, you know hear something close to what we hear in the studio. I always tell people, you know, when we mix and we play back in the studio, you know, this is as good as you're ever going to hear it. You know, it's never going to sound any better than this. Right, right. So... Yeah.
1: Hey Al, you you mentioned a little while ago to me and Rick that uh you've traveled pretty much the globe and actually in a in an educator um position to teach you know, new upcoming uh engineers, but with so many changes in recording technology, music, and even the music business itself over your the course of your career. You know, what are you telling the new engineers as you travel the world and you mentioned you were in Paris and in teaching. So what do you what are you telling these new up and coming engineers around the world?
2: Well, I show them my techniques. I think what they do is they want to uh, they want to learn what I do. You know, there are so many of them mm-hmm. that come say, "Oh, you know, you're my favorite" or whatever. And I listen whenever I'm doing anything. I listen to your records, and uh, um, you know, want to duplicate it. So, what do you do? And I, I show him, you know, how how simple it is to to record um, if you do it correctly. You know. Where if you get the right microphone and you put the... You know, sometimes moving a microphone an inch makes all the difference in the world. So, you know, it's a question of... First of all, I make sure that they know that you've got to go in the room and hear the instrument. Then it's your job to go in the control room and capture that sound. That's what you're supposed to do. So, and if it's not sounding like that, then you got to go out, either change the mic, move the mic around, um, you know, just make these minor adjustments until you get what you want. Yeah. Um, by the way, the piano player that I was trying to think of before oh, yeah. just popped into my head, Bill Evans. There oh, you yeah, go. Yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> How can we forget <laughs> Bill Evans? <laughs> not, not a bad guy, yeah. Not a bad guy. <laughs> my favorite piano player, man. Oh, yeah. I just loved him.
0: Hey, and we've got one more question final question yes. and, and and if and if you can talk about it, if there's anything that you're working on project wise uh can you let us know what's what we can expect next from Al schmidt
2: sure, okay well next um uh, I've got a bunch of projects next year uh-huh. um I'm off the rest of the year, but then I'm going in. I'm doing um, I'm doing something with a girl singer by the name of Ruma R U M E R. She's had yeah. some hits in in English. She's quite good. Yeah, I know. Uh, she's got almost a Karen Carpenter kind of sound. Yeah, she's great. So I'm going to work on that a little bit. Cool. And then uh, I'm going in with Dylan again. Okay. To do another Dylan record, and uh, I'm really excited about that. Cool. Um, it's it, he he's great, and we work for like you know a month straight. So yeah. it's great. We take weekends off, and and uh, and it, it's really a lot of fun. Okay. And then I'm uh, scheduled to do a, another record with Dr. John.
3: Oh, cool!
2: Looking forward to that. Wow. And then the latter part of the year, um, I think I'm going to be doing another record with uh, Diana Krall. She's going to get back to more jazz stuff. You know, she got a little away from it with uh, the last two albums. So we're going back to that. And I think, I don't know, I think Johnny Mandel might do the charts. So, uh, you know, those are three things I have to look forward to next year. And and who knows what else comes along, you know. I'm going to Russia to teach. I'll be there for a couple weeks uh, in Moscow and St. Petersburg. Oh, that's cool. And then uh, I'm going to France uh, to teach mm-hmm. in Provence mm-hmm. uh, in September mm-hmm. so that's that's pretty much it for next year that sounds like a busy year
1: very very
0: nice.
2: yeah yeah you know what I, you know I don't know what I'd do if I didn't <laughs> didn't work you know I I mean I get in the car every day first of all I lie to my wife when I tell her I'm going to work
3: because <laughs> <Okay. laughs> it's not work <laughs> and worked, right? second of
2: all I get in the car and when I get out of where we live here and, and get on the freeway, I I always look up and say, "Thank you, God. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it's for giving me this life. Yeah. You know, it's just uh, you know, I don't think I have ever, ever worked a real day in my life. You know, it's all so much fun.
1: Yeah. Hey, Al, I've got one more quick question. Sure. What do you th- What do you think of so many projects that are ending up now on vinyl?
2: Oh, I love it. Are you kidding? I oh that I love vinyl. <laughs> I know it's a pain. You know, after. Sixteen, eighteen minutes—you got to get up and turn it over <laughs> and do all that stuff. Uh, yeah. But the sound is just so much better. It's just wonderful. Yeah. I, I love it. I—I I went to—they um, uh, had a thing in the, uh, at Capitol on the parking lot where they had all these guys out with vintage vinyls, <laughs> yeah, and cool, I was yeah. able to find so many things yeah. to replenish my uh, my collection. Yeah. Um, oh, it was—it's it's just great. I'm so happy that they're doing this this is uh i am too that's wonderful yeah I, I love it and uh, you know all the vinyl guys there's a guy at uh Capitol, ron mcmaster who does most of the v- vinyl there he uh he's so jammed they they put, set up another room with another guy there to do it and then bernie Grundman, <laughs> you, you got to book him like three months in advance Jeez, to uh wow. to get uh a vinyl done Wow. It's great. It's amazing. I'm so happy that people are doing it. Yeah. And and, and a lot of young people. You're yeah, right. You're right. You know, it's not the old farts like us yeah. that are doing it. You know, it's <laughs> young right. people that are, that are into it and it's wonderful. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, Rick, it's... Rick just gave me my, uh, my my Christmas present and it happens to be a vinyl record.
2: <laughs> oh my god, how cool is that? And you know what I love about vinyl records? Liner notes.
3: I know. I oh, love yeah.
2: liner notes. You know, and on some of the CDs, they're so small, you need a magnifying glass to read them. I know,
1: exactly. You know,
0: I, I, I just love liner notes.
2: I yeah. think it's great.
0: Well, that's what our show's all about, Al. I mean, it's, 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 right. this is a liner note show. We like to talk to the guys that, you know, that have, have made the music happen over the years. So. And definitely cool. you have. So thank you, thank you very <laughs> oh, much great. for your, your contribution. Well, I
2: hope you got everything you need, and if oh, you didn't, gosh. you know, you can call me back.
0: Well, we hey. appreciate that. This has been wonderful, and we wish you uh, a great start to the new year, and uh, good luck with all your projects, in 2016. And you
2: too, guys. Happy holidays and uh, stay safe. And uh, happy
0: new year. Talk to you later. All right.
2: Yeah, okay. Thanks so much. Bye, Bye Al. Thanks again. Bye.
0: Special thanks to Al Schmidt for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. We'd also like to thank our correspondents Kim Riley, Brian Pearson, Scott Gross, Mikhail Ingstrom, Loretta Sassaman, Scott Sheriff, Don Breitup, and Matsunala for their continued support and content development for Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast is powered by Cabello Associates and Earshot Audio Post. For information about becoming a sponsor and sharing your message with thousands of music fans around the world, please visit InsideMusicCast.com for contact information. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast.